Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Tom Hudson is out today. Hurricane Irma was a Category 4 storm when it struck the Florida Keys five years ago. Local governments still have millions of dollars to buy out homes suffering from repeated flood risk. And after a few weeks of deadly mass shootings, a state representative is spearheading an effort to pass common sense legislation through a special session. He says he's having trouble gathering broad support. Also, weakened flooding spilled thousands of gallons of sewage into the streets of Miami-Dade. That wastewater entered some of Miami's waterways. What happens next? Finally, Miami-Dade voters will be forced to elect the county sheriff in 2024. Elected officials say the process won't be easy. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. The program is made possible by Willie the B-Man, B-Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Tom Hudson is out today. Five years ago, Hurricane Irma struck the Florida Keys as a Category 4 storm, carving a path of destruction through the Keys. Afterwards, local governments received money to buy people out from homes that were at risk of repeated flooding. Local governments still have millions to spend on these voluntary buyouts. In the city of Marathon, the deadline for these buyouts is fast approaching. Homeowners there have until June 15th to apply. Joining us now to discuss these buyouts is WLRN's Florida Keys reporter, Nan Klingener. Nan, how are you? I am here, Wilkin. How are you? Hey, thanks for joining us. <laughs> I thought we lost you there. Nope, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so You're after Hurricane Irma hit, how did these buyouts come to be? Yeah, so um, FEMA has a program um, for basically hazard mitigation and uh, sent some money to the state, which the state then distributed. And uh, $20 million of that came to the Keys, which uh, $15 million for Monroe County for its unincorporated Monroe County areas and $5 million for the city of Marathon. And Marathon's program is the one with the deadline that's coming right up next Wednesday. Uh, and are, are these federal or, or state dollars given to these local keys governments? It's kind of both. You know, <laughs> it starts at the top and comes through the state to distribute it. So the states decide the one that decided, you know, which areas got how much money. And then do you know how much money the city of Marathon or Monroe County as a whole has left for the program? Well, the county tells me they have already spent um, four point six million dollars. Um, and have acquired eight properties, and they've got another 14 that are in the pipeline. Um, in Marathon, they say they've got seven in their program, um, and that two of their offers have been accepted, and they're now awaiting approval from the state. I don't know how much money that is, but they say most of their properties are in the one hundred dollars to $250,000 range. Hmm. $4.6 million for those eight properties. Um when is the deadline for Monroe County? Monroe County doesn't have a deadline. Um, they are sort of extending it till the, the money runs out. They say the state has extended the program for them for another year until June of 2023. 
but I certainly wait, would not wait around given the pace that they're going with this program. If you wanted to join this voluntary buyout program, I would, I would get in there now. Sounds like a lot of spending <laughs> is about to happen right now. Oh, <laughs> uh, when, when these properties are eventually bought out, uh, what are their plans for the newly freed spaces? They will demolish the properties that are on them um, and they will use them either as green space, like a little pocket park or something, or also for stormwater management. Hmm. And does the county or any city have plans to rebuild housing in these areas? Not in those specific areas, because obviously those are areas really prone to repeated flood risk. Um, what they could possibly do is um, use the building rights from those properties and put that toward housing elsewhere, because um, in the Keys, the amount we can build is very limited by hurricane evacuation. So it's a very um, the right to build a property is extremely valuable down here. And, and I want to make sure my statement was accurate earlier. I said four point six million for eight properties. Was that was that accurate? Yep, that's that's what they tell, they tell me. Yeah, yeah. The the program has a cap of um, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but you can get an exemption on that, just because properties in the Keys are you know so insanely valuable. So the county says that um, three of their eight have actually had to get those exemptions. Hmm. Now let's talk about those exemptions, Nan. There is an exemption in the Keys received uh, on the value of its properties. Can you explain this exemption? Yeah, that's a different <laughs> different <laughs> exemption or rule change, I guess, because normally after um, a disaster, you would want if you're offering people buyouts, you would want to give them whatever the value of it was before the storm. Right. Because it had suffered whatever damage it suffered and therefore was would be presumably less valuable. But once again, the keys just being so insanely valuable, you know, very low supply, very high demand and um so they are allowed to buy these properties at what they are valued at after the storm. You know, our tax base in the Keys actually went up in the year after Irma, which was really surprising given the storm. You know, it was a category four storm. It did a lot of damage. But, you know, just just the piece of land in the Keys is so valuable. Right. That, and tour yeah. season is kicking in. Low supply, <laughs> high demand. Uh, yep. Complex web of issues here. Uh, when the deadline for the city of Marathon ends, what happens if the money isn't used up? Uh, what happens when the money isn't used up for um, or the property still remains? Yeah, they would. Um, they would send any leftover money back to the state and it would go back into that disaster relief program um, to be used where it's needed and wanted, I guess. Yeah. All right. And, and for our listeners interested in the buyout program, where can they go to apply to get started? Both the city of Marathon and the Monroe County have um, sites on their websites. So if you just Googled, you know, city of Marathon voluntary buyout or Monroe County voluntary buyout, you would find it. Um, we posted a story on our website on Monday about this that has links to both the city and the county. And uh, I would not be at all surprised if it wasn't showing up soon on the uh, WLRN Twitter feed at WLRN. All right. And producers say there is a caller um, who wants to speak about the specific program. Stay on with me, Nan. Let me j make sure if the caller's in. Yes. Hello. Hey, how are you? What's your name? I'm, I'm well, thank you. My name's Michael Flaxox. Michael. I'm up in Palm Beach County, Lake Worth Beach. Awesome. Thanks for joining the South Florida Roundup. Uh, what's your question? Well, it's a comment more. Um, 
the buyout programs, I'm a realtor, okay, and I see the buyout programs as helping, but they're so woefully underfunded. It seems like a tear in a salted sea, right? And then when we think about this, seven years ago, I took my secretary to Miami Beach for lunch, and I got out, and there was an octopus in the parking garage, okay? That is a very serious sign. Water is being pushed up through the infrastructure, okay? That was alarming to me. Now, I'm a realtor, and I make my living off a property down here, but truthfully, in the end, I don't think any of us should be living down here. And and that's and did you have a question for Nan regarding the buy program well, in in how, the keys in particular? How can the money for some of the most impoverished residents of the keys? How is there is there more of an outreach for them, or is it just first come first serve? Because no, um, the, you could still own property in the keys and not have money. That's right. That's right. And um, the county especially um, went through and and came up with eligibility criteria for um, these properties and the homeowners. Um, And you can see that on their website um, as well. So they are definitely keeping that in mind and wanting to get it to the people who need it the most, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michael. Nan, thank you so much for your time and expertise. All right. Thanks, Wilkin. All right. Before it was named Tropical Storm Alex, it hit South Florida as a tropical system last week. It brought more than 10 inches of rainfall on Miami over a 72-hour span. Many parts of Miami were hit with floods that swept up vehicles and stalled them in the streets. Flooding was also reported in Hialeah, Coral Gables, and Hollywood. Cutler Bay Mayor Tim Mirbot uh, spoke to WLRN about the heavy rain the city saw last week. We got hit by a very hard rain. Um, we had our engineers actually on the ground looking at flood uh, plane management ahead of time, so they were able to measure the rainfall, and they have reported that we've got the 100-year storm, which was 21 inches, and the, the chances of that happening are 0.01% every 100 years. So we got hit with it, and we got hit pretty bad. The Atlantic's first tropical storm of the season didn't just flood the streets, it also flooded the county's sewage system. Six spills occurred as rain swept, I'm sorry, as rain seeped into the sewer system, letting wastewater out into the into some of Miami's waterways, such as the Miami River, Biscayne Bay, and waters off Virginia Key. Joining us now to discuss the sewage spills and the county systems in, in Miami-Dade County, is WLRN's environmental reporter, Jenny Stiletovich. <laughs> Jenny, how are you? I'm good, Wilkin. Thank you. Don't worry, you're not the first to do that. <laughs> I'm over here stuttering and stumbling. I have my tea here and it's not working. Uh, when did the sewage spills occur? So I think the first one was reported at the Central District plant about 2 a.m. on Saturday. It's uh, the, the the amount of rainwater seeping into the system was tremendous. I think the water flow that they measured, you know, the system capacity is, I forget, it's like 100 and something now. It, it more than doubled, um, and, that, and that caused the overflows first at the Central District. And then you had five other locations where, where sewage spilled as well, either when manhole covers um, came off because the, the the water was just coming up out of them, um, or there were problems with pumps. Wow, and problems with pumps. And where did the sewage uh, go after seeping out of the system? 
Well, there was a couple of spots like at the central district plant, which is right, you know, on on the ocean. So when when this, the county reported these spills to the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, one of the things they have to say is whether or not it gets into surface water. So at that spill, they estimated that it was at least a thousand gallons that went into the, the ocean. Um, there was another spill near the Miami River and there was another one near Biscayne Bay. Hmm. And, and you spoke with uh, Cutler Bay Mayor Tim Mirbot yesterday. Is the city taking any other steps to prevent and safeguard against flooding? Well, so Cutler Bay, which is way further south, had a tremendous amount of rain, and they had one area in particular around Saga Bay. Um, it's east of US-1. Um, it drains a little bit differently than other parts of, of Cutler Bay, and it just filled up. Um, they had to bring in the, a water management district pump to, to get the water levels down. It, it, I think what was dramatic was that it filled up and it stayed up. I talked to the one, one of the residents who lived across the street who said they, you know, they went to bed, um, uh, you know, in a neighborhood and they woke up on an island because the streets were just all, all, all flooded around that area. Um, so they, Cutler Bay is taking steps. They've got some stormwater projects they're working on. And they are also, uh, they bought out a couple of uh, vacant pieces of property uh, to keep them uh, green and to be able to, to sort of use them for flood control. All right, stay on with me, Jenny. I have Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava with me here. Uh, Mayor, how are you? I am great. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. What's the current status of flooding in the county? Fortunately, the waters are receding, and we've done everything possible to work with our fellow agencies, Tap Water Water Management District and others, to make sure that water could safely exit through the canal system, uh, pumps, uh, and uh, getting ready to make sure we protect people with the next major event. And why did the flooding overwhelm the county's sewer system in certain places? That's certainly a question that a lot of uh, residents have. Right. So it happens that people get frustrated with the water in the streets, understandably, and a number of places that people actually had the stormwater, the rainwater, go into the sewage system, and that led to the sewage overflow. So it's really important that people understand that it's against the law to pry open those manhole covers. It does lead to the water mixing and overwhelming our wastewater system. So I'm we Wilk- have to keep the system separate. All right. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with Jenny Stiletovich about the impact surrounding the recent flooding and Mayor Levine Cava, uh, Daniela Levine Cava. Does the county have any other stormwater or flooding or sewage projects planned? We are hard at work on major infrastructure projects. From the time I was county commissioner starting 2014 until now as mayor, I have prioritized We know that we're vulnerable. The sea is rising. Our sewer system is old. I was able to prioritize the areas with the most uh, vulnerability to uh, make sure that where there's only one functioning pump, we would have backup pumps. And those are aggressively, those projects aggressively moving forward. We have one of the largest infrastructure uh, rebuilding efforts in the history of the state of Florida happening. So we're doing all of that, upgrading, replacing, but we do need the public to help us. And we also have to recognize that we live in a place that is low to the ocean, sea is rising, and we are vulnerable. Hmm. 
Hmm. And Mayor Levine Kava, Miami Dade is in the midst of a 15 year, $1.5 billion, $1.5 billion federally ordered improvement project. What does yes. this plan address? Exactly. The things that I mentioned the replacement of the aging pipes, the replacement of pumps. Um, all of that has been underway. And again, I have been pushing that, accelerating that. Uh, whenever there's been an opportunity to go faster, uh, build more, I've supported that. Uh, basically, we have to future-proof our county infrastructure, and that's what we're doing. And I'll mention septic as a particular concern. We have many homes on septic systems. As the uh, sea level rises, it puts more of our septic systems at risk of overflow, and that leads to pollution into our waterways and bay. So we're aggressively converting septic to our uh, safe uh, sewage system. We started in the lowest lying areas. We've applied for and received lots of state money. We've applied for federal money, uh, doing everything we can to accelerate moving from septic to sewer. Hmm. And when is it slated to be completed? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I don't have the exact completion date, but I, within the court mandate, I'll put it to you like that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have not retreated uh, for a second and, and working around the clock with multiple uh, companies. Uh, we have a report we could share with you on the infrastructure projects taking place in water and sewer and our other major departments to show what a large um, effort this is. And plus, we have this bipartisan infrastructure bill at the federal level, and we have applied for a few projects. Uh, there's uh, Our Congress uh, members have ported earmarks for some of the projects, and we're, we're very vigilant every time a new opportunity opens. We are applying for dollars. And, and Mayor, um, as, as you're going through the process now, have there been any plans for temporary upgrades to the system in preparation for hurricane season? So what we do for hurricane season is um, the same we always do, which is we empty out the canals with the support of South Florida Water Management District. We make sure that our pumps are functional. Uh, we um, educate the public about preparing at their own homes. And now we're going to do even more to educate people about not uh, basically flooding the stormwater system. We, we really need to monitor it through our professional staff that are out on the streets unclogging drains. We have to work with our cities to open up the drains. We've got secondary canal gates that are within uh, the county. The, some of the cities even have canals. So we're coordinating all of that across the entire county. In fact, this afternoon, we have a workshop with all of the cities so that we can talk about how we work more comprehensively to um, make sure that our system is storm ready and future ready. So things are in process right now. And Jenny, have we seen any other cities taking steps to safeguard against flooding? Well, as I mentioned, Cutler Bay uh, is doing some things. The city of Miami is doing some things. I think everybody is aware that the, the that the situation is, um, you know, the threats are getting worse with sea rise. Um, the my, Miami Waterkeeper and Everglades Law recently did a report card on stormwater management at um, around the, the county. The county pollution permit oversees 32 municipalities. Um, and I, I believe that, that the mayor 
is aware of this um, and and is trying to uh, to to get some of those smaller utilities uh, to do a better job complying with the the pollution permit that they manage. Exactly, mm. that's that's right, and that's why we look. I'm the mayor that convenes the city mayors on a regular basis to talk about shared concerns and solutions. We did it for housing. Now we're doing it for stormwater. As I said, today is the first comprehensive conversation. I just want to put this into perspective for your listeners. We have our Department of Water and Sewer has 300 million gallons every day going through our pipes. And we also are treating 110 billion gallons of wastewater every year. So that's about 42,000 gallons per year per resident, a lot of water. And so we're designed, uh, our wastewater system, to handle around 300 million gallons of wastewater a day. But during this storm, it got to 800 million gallons. So, you know, when we're designed for 300 million, we get to 800 million. It's amazing that we did not have failures. And unfortunately, as, again, the stormwater mixed with the sewer, the sewage system, and we have to avoid that. That is what is going to be so very critical. Um, we did have some overflows uh, in poor areas. We're very mindful, and we're going to work with the public to help them help us to prevent that in the future. Yeah, the process continues. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava and WLRN's environmental reporter, Jenny Stiletovich, thank you both for your time. Thank you so much. Still to come, in the wake of multiple recent mass shootings, a state representative wants to hold another special session. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Join the conversation at 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. A desperate plea and impassioned call to action in regards to gun control and regulation. Florida Representative Joseph Geller of District 100, which consists of parts of Miami-Dade County and most of Hollywood in southern Broward County, called for a special session on gun regulation last week. He called for universal background checks, expanding red flag laws, and limiting high-capacity rifle magazines. We spoke with Representative Geller about this special session. As the representative spearheading the effort to get this special session on gun violence and regulation, what finally pushed you to call for this package? Uvalde. And why now? It seems like hardly a day goes past that we don't hear about another mass shooting event. And in fact, it's not just mass shootings. People are dying from gun violence every day in, in some of our neighborhoods. And I, I just couldn't do nothing for another day. You know, it's just, it's overwhelming. And, and, and in fact, let me, just to make this point, this is about gun violence. This is not about schools only. I'm all for school safety. I support it completely. In fact, I had bills a couple of years back before Parkland that talked about having increased law enforcement presence to keep kids safe at schools. 
today, we're not looking just at schools. We're talking about supermarkets and nightclubs and hospitals and concert venues. And my God, houses of worship, churches, and synagogues. I mean, it's just, it's, I don't know where you could go in our society today and think you're safe. So we have to act. We have to do so. And you mentioned these examples of why you have to act. Gun legislation was not discussed during the Florida legislative session this year. What does it take for special sessions dealing with topics outside of the legislative session to occur? To call any special session, first, somebody has to send a letter like I did to trigger it. And then you have to get other legislators to join in the call with an essentially identical call. And we pushed that out through our Democratic offices in the House and Senate. But we also put it out to Republicans asking them to join. And that took 20% of the total legislature. So this Monday, the Secretary of State now has put out a formal poll of the membership. And by the deadline they set, we must have 60% of each house of the legislature. So in the Senate, that's 24. And I think in the House, that's 72. Uh, that have to affirmatively call for it. Unfortunately, anyone who doesn't vote is deemed to be a no. Wow. And, and so, Representative Geller, what, do you, what are you proposing? You described some of the legislation in this package as, quote, common sense legislation that has support from both parties to garner wide support. Will this be enough to gather that support? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm an optimist. In fact, you pretty much have to be an optimist to be a Democrat in the Florida House. I mean, it's tough to show up if you're not. But there's a lot of things I'd like to see us do that I didn't include in this poll. I mean, personally, I think we should be banning assault weapons in the same way that they banned uh, so-called Tommy guns, machine guns, after the uh, Al Capone. I think we shouldn't have assault weapons available and, you know, out on the street. And that was the law in this country for 10 years. But I didn't include that in this call. I wanted something that would be able to reach across party lines and hopefully attract support from across the aisle by coming up with just these, some simple common sense solutions. What we've asked for specifically are, number one, universal background checks. Right now, background checks are in place, but there are loopholes. There are ways to get around them. Uh, gun show loophole, private sale. I would think every law-abiding citizen would want to know that these weapons are not being sold to somebody who we don't agree should never have them. That's what background checks are about. And by the way, I think we could look at background checks on ammunition as well. The American people, the citizens of Florida overwhelmingly support background checks. It ought to be an easy thing for us to do, 
but it would help. Number two are what are called red flag laws, uh, risk protection orders formally. And what they are is that if somebody can go in front of a judge and say, this person is a danger to themselves or to others, and please take away their weapons at least until they're better. This is done in front of a judge. It's done with full due process rights. Um, I understand a lot of people who have this happen actually have reacted by saying, yeah, I'm in a bad place right now, probably a good idea. I wouldn't have done this if you didn't push me, but yeah, go right ahead. So that's a law we passed in Florida. I was one of the ones who voted for it in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas tragedy. And so you want to expand the state's red flag laws, and you want to also expand background checks to help regulate high-capacity gun magazines. Is that correct? The magazines, but the thing with the red flag, which is being held up as a national example, right now, it's a great law. It's worked thousands of times in Florida, but it's only brought by law enforcement. Now, they're doing a good job, but I think, among others, that we ought to be allowing that to be brought by family members. Who knows better what's going on than the family? And some people are, for various reasons, reluctant to get law enforcement involved. So if we simply let family members bring this and still go in front of a judge and the person has all their rights, but let's let family members be part of this process, that seems to me to be a common a common sense approach. I see. You want family members to have some say in, um, in the red flag laws. Bring those cases. Now, as far as the magazines, you know, again, in an effort not to come up with just whatever I want, but to make sure that this would be palatable to our friends across the aisle, we're limiting it to high capacity magazines on rifles. I'm told there are some handguns that have larger clips. That's how they're manufactured. People were very concerned. So, you know, we acceded to that. We said, okay, for magazines, for for rifles only, but why anybody needs 30 or 50 or 100 rounds that can be fired in a matter of seconds, to what end? If this is just about target practice, I don't mind having those kinds of magazines available but you can't buy one and leave with it. If you wanna do that, because you're somebody who does target shooting, um, I could see that. Sure. But you shouldn't allow these on the street. These are weapons of war. I'm still hopeful that they will recognize the need for us to do something. This isn't the last thing we would need to do. Let's do something right now. We must act. On the topic of gun control and gun legislation, Governor DeSantis has advocated for constitutional carry in the state of Florida. What are your thoughts on constitutional carry in Florida? Florida is not Dodge City. I think that's a bad idea. I don't think that that's within the purview of the Second Amendment. 
which I think is widely misread anyway. But I certainly don't think that we need, you know, visibly armed citizens walking the streets. And I, I, I reject the idea that it is constitutional, the so-called constitutional carrying. I think that's a misreading of what our constitution says. What happened to the part about a well-regulated militia? That constitutional carry policy uh, essentially says residents wouldn't require a permit to carry an open or concealed firearm. Now, DeSantis said that this budget has had record funding and continues record funding for school safety and school security. He said, quote, with all due respect to these leftists, they just want to come after your Second Amendment rights, end quote. What's your take on that statement? I don't believe it's accurate. I find it rather disingenuous. There's nothing in what I propose that would take anyone's right to have firearms away. Assuming that they're not, you know, felons or violent or displayed, you know, threatening behavior of some kind, you know, simple law-abiding citizens would not have their rights infringed in any way. And the name-calling is unnecessary. Um, I wish the governor would respond substantively to what I've asked for. If there's a problem with the way I phrased something, if there's a problem with what I've called for, let's talk about it. Let's get the special session. It doesn't have to take exactly the form I'm pushing. I wanna get something done. If there's some language we can tweak the governor has a substantive response if he says well the issue with the red flag laws is we shouldn't allow whatever it is that he has to say i don't see what the objection is but if there is one let's have the session let's get up there and let's legislate let's talk about these issues let's find common ground let's tweak the language as necessary and let's do something this absolute rejectionism makes no sense to me. If you don't get enough votes for the special session, what are the next steps if there are if there are any? Well, perhaps we'll try again. Maybe we'll uh, you know change the list. That's why it would be so helpful if people aren't in support of this, if my Republican colleagues are not going to vote yes, tell us why. Tell us what you would vote yes to. Tell us what it takes to get us up there to address the issue and tell us what the common ground is and we'll move towards it. This is not a time for partisanship. This is a time to protect all of our people against this scourge of gun violence. Let's do something. Speaking of protection, Representative Geller, the U.S. has had a history of gun violence. Uvalde, Buffalo, New York. It's been a chaotic few weeks of it. Does this moment feel different to you right now? I'd like to say it does, because that would be what might move us towards addressing the issue. And maybe Congress is doing that. But sadly, this has been going on for far too long. Parkland, Sandy Hook, Pulse, I mean, at least all the way back to Columbine, 
And let's be frank, as you said, this country has a history of gun violence that goes back long before Columbine. So if that's what it takes to spur people to action, then sure, it feels different. But the truth is, it actually feels all too much the same. Thank you for sharing your time with us, Representative Geller. It's my pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for helping to make the public aware. That was Representative Joseph Geller, representing representative of District 100. The vote for a special session needs to be in by 3 p.m. today. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN 800-743-WLRN 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is WLRN's reporter, Dana Rivero. Danny, deadly mass shootings have dominated the news. What are your thoughts on Representative Geller's attempt to push for another special session on this topic? Well, I I will say it seems at this moment to be a pretty tall order because of the the kind of majority. Democrats don't have a majority in either house, and they would need more than just a majority to get it done. Um, You know, the vote for that needs to be in by 3 p.m. We'll find out pretty soon. Um, but just to add a little bit of context, I suppose, on where Florida stacks up to a lot of other parts of the country, as Representative Geller said, the red flag law that we passed after um, the Parkland shooting in 2018 is being held up as kind of a national model that other states should be moving towards. There's even federal legislation making that federal, possibly. Um, and then, you know, Florida, just to mention, we're one of only... Um, five other states plus Washington, D.C. that doesn't have open carry. You, you have to be 21 to purchase a firearm. Um, we're actually, we have more restrictive laws than most other states, actually, at, at this point, just for context, especially when you compare us to the surrounding southern states. Um, do, do you think that would also account for why perhaps uh, the Republican bipartisanship support is lacking in that sense? Potentially, yeah. I mean, the it was not a an easy or expected thing actually when they did what they did in 2018 after after Parkland, and then now it is being held up even by some Democratic um, representatives at the state level across the country as, hey, we need to do what Florida did, and there were Republicans that did it. Um, I, I will mention though that as as Representative Geller mentioned, the Florida Republican Party actually seems to be moving in the opposite direction with the with the the talk about constitutional carry governor DeSantis um said two months ago that he he basically promised that before he's done as governor he's going to sign that legislation which would mean that you don't need a permit to carry a, a a firearm so and and the incoming Florida House Speaker Paul Renner has voiced support for that too as the the Miami Herald reported yesterday that's the constitutional carry correct yeah So Danny is going to stick around with us for the next segment still to come. In 2024, Miami-Dade is slated to elect its first sheriff in more than 60 years. But is everyone in the county on board with this this decision? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Miami-Dade is the only county in a state that does not have an elected sheriff's office. That will change soon. A statewide ballot initiative is forcing Miami-Dade to elect a county sheriff in 2024. 
But what will this new sheriff's office look like? And how will this elected position shape resources and politics in the county? Joining us now to talk about the impact a sheriff's office could have in Miami-Dade is WLRN reporter Danny Rivero. Danny, thanks for joining the South Florida Roundup. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Uh, now, it looks like the county commission has had some very important decisions to make about a new sheriff's office. But what's the history behind not having one in the first place? <laughs> it's not it's not a pretty history. I mean, what happened was in the 60s, there was a huge scandal because Dade County did have a sheriff at one point. And what happened is that office, that elected official position was completely corrupted. I mean, there was a, there was a huge scandal in the 60s where the sheriff's office was basically working hand in hand with illegal gambling operations, prostitution. They were shaking down illegal abortion providers at the time huge scandal so the voters here actually voted to abolish the, the office of the sheriff we haven't had a sheriff ever since until this amendment was put on the on the on the ballot in 2018 which was statewide but it only actually affected three of the counties one of them is miami-dade so we are going to have to have an elected sheriff here in 2024 wow and i report out of palm beach county so i'm so used to having an elected sheriff. Um, Bradshaw has been a sheriff for more than 16 years, so right. it was quite a surprise for me to hear that there wasn't a sheriff in, in Miami-Dade. And, and so how important is this decision uh, for Miami-Dade County? It is a very, very big deal. Um, the, the police department in Miami-Dade is the largest police department in the state of Florida. Uh, it's bigger than the Florida Highway Patrol, the state police. It's one of the top 10 biggest police departments in the whole country. So the question has been, okay, we have to have an elected sheriff now. What do we do? Do we hand over the entire Miami-Dade Police Department to the sheriff? Or does the, the county commission, does the county government shape it in a way where they keep control of some things and the sheriff only has to do basically a bare minimum? And, you know, just over the last two weeks, a lot of decisions have been made on this. The The, the county commission has voted to keep its police department intact specifically for unincorporated areas of Miami-Dade County, which unlike Broward County, which is almost completely incorporated, everything is a city in Miami-Dade County. The unincorporated areas are huge. It's, it's about a million people. I mean, if, if it was actually incorporated into a city, it would be probably neck and neck with Jacksonville as the biggest city in the, in the, in the state. So they are opting to keep, the the police department intact keep the the mayor and the commission on top of it and and watching over it and um the basically they want the sheriff whenever they come in whoever is elected to do only the specific things that are outlined in in the florida constitution that are the sheriff's duties and keep a lot of the rest of it kind of publicly monitored through the commission and the mayor's office. Hmm. So the, the impact of the Miami-Dade Police Department, the size of the sheriff's department, there's so much to navigate. Uh, several commissioners have shared their perspective about the sheriff's office, um, and many of whom have shared their thoughts on the impact this could have in the county, right? Right. I mean, wh one of the one of the biggest concerns here is that every county that has a sheriff's office, the county has to fund it. And what happens is sheriffs under the Florida Constitution actually have the right, if they, if they aren't happy with the budget that the county gives them, they can go straight up to Tallahassee and, and basically ask for more. And they can unilaterally actually raise taxes on residents. Um, 
in order to fund whatever they're they're asking for. And so a lot of these county commissioners are actually really worried about that because they say, you know, we shape the budget as it is now. The county does. And they manage between, you know, funding parks, funding roads, funding other aspects of, of local government. And they say, well, if, if we have a, a really strong, massive sheriff's office, they could actually sidestep the, the county commission, go to Tallahassee and then force the county to possibly raise taxes on people in order to fund everything or have to cut other services. They'd have political leverage, essentially. They would have. I mean, an elected sheriff, as you know, in Palm Beach County, the sheriff is a very, very powerful political figure. It's a law huge. enforcement figure, but it's a political figure. And this would set up kind of headbutting between the, the county government and the sheriff's office. And, you know, what's emerged is that a majority of, of the county commission they they know that they're going to have to elect a Miami-Dade sheriff. Everyone is going to have to elect one. But they're trying to shape it in a way that will minimize that, that kind of thing. And then also another concern is that, as, as several commissioners raised, when you have a sheriff, it's not like a county commission where, you know, there's a policy change and you have public comment and there's a big, you know, meeting and you can line up and express your, your view. A sheriff is kind of an executive position. They don't have to have open meetings and get feedback and, and incorporated and whatnot. So they say for the million uh, roughly people that are in unincorporated Miami-Dade County, if that's left up to the sheriff, whoever's policing them, they have no recourse. They can't call for policy changes. They can't do anything. Um, on, you know, they they have to abide by with whatever the, the sheriff wants to do. And a lot of them are against that. Sure. And speaking of those who are against it, not everyone went along with this. What what were the arguments against keeping the county police department intact? Well, a, a lot of it is the cost, um, because right now the Miami-Dade Police Department is the biggest in the state. And they argue, hey, if we keep this police department and we're going to have to elect a sheriff, we're basically creating a whole new police department. You're going to be doubling cost. You're going to be doubling um, like just back of the house things, payroll, other other things like that. So there is a real fiscal concern for, for having basically two countywide um, police departments. I'll just repeat that the Miami-Dade Police Department, as it's now envisioned in the future after 2024, it will be only for unincorporated areas. Um, so it wouldn't be like today where Miami-Dade police also have jurisdiction in the city of Miami, it would be only in unincorporated areas. But it's a million people that live in that area. Hmm. And how has like the Florida Sheriff's Association responded to all of this? The Florida Sheriff's Association is really not happy with this. They wanted a wholesale, just hand it all over, give it all over to the sheriff. They've already said that they plan to sue Miami-Dade County. Exactly the merits of that or what the arguments will be it's kind of up to, you know, I, I can't speak on that. I mean, the Florida Constitution does have a few specific things that, that sheriffs have to do. Um, they have to, you know, execute court orders like evictions. They have to do security at the county and circuit courts. That's basically, I mean, that's basically it. There's a there's a minimum. Oh, and one other thing that the county did, they they actually decided that they're going to take the, the jails, the correctional system off of the sheriff's plate. So, so the sheriff is not going to be managing the, the jails, which they don't have to by the Constitution manage the jails, but most counties do give it to them. And in, in this case, the county said, no, 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 
we want to have control of that. The and, sheriff's not going to have control of that. And, and to clarify, uh, the sheriff's office would replace um, MDC PD? Some, some things are going to have to be negotiated. I mean, that, that's why this is a tricky thing. Um, whenever a sheriff gets elected, there are going to have to be negotiations between if any staff gets shifted over to the new sheriff's department, how much gets shifted. I mean, it's not, nothing is set in stone. It has to be negotiated. And that might be part of the reason why the sheriff's office, the, the sheriff's um, association is concerned about this because, you know, there's a saying like, there's a new sheriff in town. Well, that's usually because like the sheriff is used to calling the shots. And in this case, the county is saying, no, 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 we're going to hold on to a lot of this power. And sheriff's, just as a group, are used to having that power. Hmm. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with WLRN reporter Dana Rivero about why Miami-Dade voters will be forced to elect a sheriff's office in 2024. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. Now let's let's segue into the constitutional matter about this here uh, in a constitutional sense what exactly is a county sheriff responsible for briefly right like i said they they execute um court orders and they do security they have county-wide jurisdiction so they could go into any city and they would have jurisdiction but there's not there's not too much else i mean it's you could do a very very small sheriff's office which seems to be what what the county's doing or you could have a massive do-everything sheriff's office. And in this case, Miami-Dade County seems to be going for a smaller sheriff's office. Dan Rivero, thank you so much for your time. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Je- Jessica Bakeman is our senior editor of news. The director of radio operation is Peter J. Mayers. The program's technical supervisor is Richard Ives. Amber is and Carolina is our answers our phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is thanks for calling and listening. The program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media. Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.